Okay, now we continue the discussion of the Bahu Dhatuka Sutta, the discourse on the many kinds of elements. Okay, so far we've discussed the section where the Buddha classifies the different types of Dhatu. If you remember the way the Sutta begins, this is in paragraph 3, the Buddha says that when a monk is skilled in the elements, skilled in the bases, the sense bases, skilled in dependent origination, skilled in what is possible and what is impossible. In that way he, be, he can be called a wise man. So now what we've covered so far is the different types of elements. Now we come to the second category mentioned by the Buddha. This is called the bases or ayatana. Pali word is ayam. The exact meaning of ayatana, it's, it's not really so clear, and the word is used in a number of ways. But in this place, the word ayatana seems to be used in the sense of the base for the arising of consciousness. So consciousness always depends upon two types of bases. One we can call the sense faculty and the other is the sense object. And so we have the five types of sense consciousness. Each arise with its own particular physical physical faculty. That's the internal base and its own particular object. That's the external base. That is, we divide the twelve ayatanas into six internal bases and six external bases. And in the case of the five physical senses, it should be clear enough that we have the eye, which is the physical base for eye consciousness, and forms is the external base of eye consciousness. But here, what is meant by the eye, it's not simply this ball of this ball of flesh within the skull, and the ear is not simply this outer thing, this outer flap, but rather the internal sense bases are particular types of physical tissue, or physical substance, which are sensitive to the particular sense object. So if we were to use terms of modern physiology, what we call the eye might be the retina, or the cones and rods within the retina. The ear would be maybe the eardrum. Then the nose would be the, we call it the olfactory bowl. It's particular, it's not this protuberance here, but it's the type of tissue within, somewhere inside the nostrils, above the nostrils, which is sensitive to the different types of odors. And similarly, the tongue would correspond to perhaps the taste buds, and what's called the body base would correspond to perhaps the nerve endings, which are sensitive to different types of tactile sensations. Okay, now the Buddha says about these six 
about these twelve sense bases, he says that these make up the all or everything. So we can say that everything, all phenomena are included within the twelve sense bases. And when the Buddha makes this statement, then the commentators interpret mano and dhamma, mind and phenomena, in a broader way simply than the bases of mind consciousness. Rather they say that mano here means not just the base for mind consciousness, but every type of consciousness is included in mano. And dhamma means not just the objects of mind consciousness, but all phenomena (laughs) that are not included in the other eleven bases. And so we have within dhammas, we have all types of the mental concomitants of consciousness. That's a rather difficult way of explanation. The simple way is just to understand them as the internal and external basis for consciousness. Okay, that is the basis, the twelve bases. Do you want to add anything on No, I think maybe we could add, could add uh, the small text that you find in Anguttara Nikaya, I will show you the all, then we have a very close yes. picture about that, and a very simple picture about that. Well, the text that just says, <laughs> I will teach you the all. What is the all? The eye and, eye and form, ear and sounds, uh, nose and smells, tongue and taste, body and tactile sensations, the mind and mental phenomena, the mind and mental phenomena. Then the Buddha says, if anybody should say, I will put aside this all and explain some other all, some other totality, he would not be able to do so. He would just meet with frustration and trouble, trouble and frustration. Insanity? No, I think it is insanity. No, I think it's vigata... Confusion? Confusion, yeah. Samoha vigata. Confusion and frustration. Why is that? Because it is outside his domain. It's impossible to do. Okay, so these are the twelve sense bases. Okay, now we come to dependent origination, Paticca Samuppada. This is supposed to be extremely profound and difficult teaching, even when the Buddha, right after his enlightenment, when he reflected on Paticca Samuppada, he thought that this principle was just so deep, so difficult, that nobody would be able to understand it. And for this reason, his mind was inclining to not teaching the Dhamma. It's just because Brahma Sahampati, the great Brahma, appeared before the Buddha and begged with him to teach that the Buddha agreed to proclaim the Dhamma. Okay, so we come now to the way in which a monk can be skilled in dependent origination. 
and the Buddha begins with, you see, in dependent origination signifies two things. First, there is what we might call an abstract principle, a philosophical principle. And then there's a particular exemplification of this principle, a particular application of it. The principle, the abstract principle of dependent origination is the principle that whatever comes into being, whatever arises, arises in dependence on conditions. And when the conditions for a particular phenomena do not exist, then that phenomena cannot arise. When the conditions that support an existing phenomena cease, then the dependent phenomena will also cease. It seems very, very simple to state this principle, but this is really the key principle to understanding the Buddha's enlightenment. People want to put the Buddha's enlightenment up in some kind of mysterious pedestal and think that it's something absolutely incomprehensible or mysterious, but actually it's this very profound understanding of what I call the real nature of existence. And this understanding of dependent origination just goes against our ordinary way of understanding things because the mind is always inclined to understand things in terms of absolutes, making absolute distinctions, making uh, rigid discriminations between things. But if we reflect on this principle of conditionality, then we see that all of these artificial distinctions and discriminations just collapse because things have no independent existence of their own but they exist just in dependence on conditions. Even we apply this to the five aggregates. This is not the ordinary application of dependent origination. Why does this body exist? Why does the body exist? One says that the body exists because of parents. If there weren't mother and father to have sexual union, then this body would not come into being. So we could say two conditions for the arising of this body, mother and father. For them, what are the conditions for the parents? They each need two parents to come into existence. And they, their parents need two parents. And so we could say that this body that exists now is the result, dependently arisen result, of a whole chain of causality which will go back even countless generations if we follow Darwin, not even only to the first human beings <laughs> to arise on Earth, but go back to the early hominids, the precursors of human beings, back to early anthropoids, um, apes that were human-like apes, back till we come even to the first arising of life on this planet Earth. And for that life to arise, many conditions were necessary. The ocean, particular chemical composition in the ocean, sunlight, air, particular balance of the gases in the air. 
And so we could say everything in this world is originating through this very, very delicate, very subtle balance of conditions. And so for this body to come into being, we need this very, very complex combination of conditions, even for there to be a Bhikkhu Sumedha here, <laughs> or a uh, Mrs. Talwata. There has to be countless, ge- countless generations and countless conditions coming together in very, very subtle, precise combinations. And even for, we could put this, apply this to a present problem, for this life on earth to continue, there has to be very, very subtle balance of conditions. If we go on now the way we are, polluting the earth, destroying, we depend on water, clean water, healthy food, breathable air, clean air. If we go on polluting the waters, polluting the air, poisoning the food with chemical fertilizers, preservatives, and so on, then we eliminate the conditions for life to continue. And if those conditions are eliminated, then human beings and other forms of life can continue. So all of this, we can say, it's practical applications of dependent origination. We don't have to think of it only in terms of a particular formula that comes in the suttas. And so everything exists through this delicate interplay of conditions. Everything, whatever is valuable, can only continue to exist if this delicate interplay of conditions is maintained. If we upset the balance of conditions, then our dependent originated phenomena will just pass away. Life will come to an end. Even the earth can become just a barren planet like Jupiter or Saturn. Okay, so the Buddha says when this exists, that comes to be with the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be with the cessation of this, that ceases. Okay, that's the general principle of conditionality. But now the Buddha's aim in formulating his Dhamma, his teaching, was not to set out an abstract scientific principle, but rather to show the way to liberation from suffering, the way to emancipation. And the way the Buddha did this on the night of his enlightenment was by seeking the conditions that support or that can maintain our bondage within samsara. He, when he sat down under the Bodhi tree, he began reflecting on the nature of life. He saw that living beings go through this interminable process of being born, growing old, falling sick and dying over and over again. And this process, that is samsara, the bitter round of rebirth. And then he inquired, what is it that keeps this process of of rebirth going? What is it that drives the round of birth and death? Well, first he asked, what is it that keeps 
all that keeps being that sub, keeps being subject to old age, sickness, and death. And then when he asked that question, he came up with an answer that seems very simple on the surface, but it actually leads into quite deep conclusion. He thought, why are beings subject to old age and death? Because they're born. If they weren't born, then they wouldn't grow old and die. <coughs> okay, then he inquired further and asked, why are beings reborn? Why do they take birth? And then he came to the conclusion that the reason why they take birth is because of something called bhava. The word bhava is sometimes translated being or existence or becoming. And of course this always gives rise to the question, how can there be being or existence before birth? Birth is explained as conception in the womb or conception, the first moment of life. How can there be bhava, being or existence before birth? But bhava means the process that takes place in a previous existence, the process of setting in motion the causes, we say the setting in motion the dynamism that will lead to a new existence. In fact, I understand bhava to be a kind of shortcut term for a longer expression that's used in the text, the production of new becoming, a new existence in the future. So bhava is all of those activities which are in some way geared towards a new existence. The Specifically, it is the karmic activities, the volitional activities, the intentional activities, good and bad, wholesome and unwholesome activities, which incline a living being towards a rebirth, towards a new existence. And then the Buddha inquired, why do beings engage in such activities? Why are they always sort of frantically running in pursuit of new of activities which have the effect of throwing them into a new existence? And then the answer the Buddha came up with is because they are clinging. They're clinging to these five aggregates of form, feeling, perception, the mental formations and consciousness. They cling to these five aggregates with desire for enjoyment here and now and with the hope of gaining enjoyment in the future, more enjoyment in the future. And because of that clinging to the aggregates, we engage in all sorts of sometimes wholesome activities if we 
have belief in a new existence and future existence, then we want to enjoy a blissful afterlife and a heaven, so then one engages in good activities, making, practicing dana, observing morality, maybe doing good deeds, but it's with the hope of a pleasant rebirth, and so there's a clinging there. And most beings whose minds are just blind with ignorance and delusion, with wrong views, they also engage in karmic activities, in bhava, becoming, but their activities are unwholesome. They will do kill, they'll steal, they commit all sorts of sexual misconduct, cheat, rob, beat others, plan evil activities, and so they accumulate unwholesome karma, they engage in unwholesome becoming, which inclines their minds towards a miserable type of rebirth. Okay, so all of these activities, good and bad, wholesome, unwholesome, volitional activities, these are motivated by, or driven by this upadana, clinging or grasping, grasping the aggregate. So this clinging is registered in the mind? Clinging is a factor or function of the mind. Yeah. Yeah. Condition or form? Conditioned by you. Conditioned by you. So visible activities only, it's clinging to the mind? Unwholesome activities will be uh, conditioned by clinging also, yeah. Because why do people engage in unwholesome activities? Maybe they don't have a belief in a rebirth, but, or they might not have a belief in a rebirth, but they just want to get their pleasure here and now, to get rich quickly, to get power, to be respected, to <coughs> play an influential role, or to enjoy sense pleasures. And so they just engage in these unwholesome activities, but even though they don't believe in the rebirth, but there's still that deep clinging, and as long as that deep clinging is still in place, then when this body gets worn out so that it can no longer serve as a suitable basis for clinging, this body gets discarded at death, but the clinging is still there. And so the mind is separated from the body, so to speak, and the clinging is still in the mind. And the clinging has to find something to attach onto. And so what it does is move towards a new form of existence, a new living body, one which is, you could say, it's karmically attuned to the karma in that stream of consciousness that's flowing on to a new existence. And so it's like there's a kind of magnetic attraction between the karma, the karmic accumulations of the being, and the types of or physical bodies, life circumstances which are coming into existence when that being dies. It's a little bit like the radio and the radio transmitters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like if we are tuning the radio, um, say there's all the time there's particular waves, waves coming, say BBC waves, in order to get the BBC, 
then when one tunes the radio precisely to the station, the BBC station, then you get this is BBC from London (laughs) (coughs) and you can't get the BBC if you turn the radio to Sri Lanka Broadcasting Corporation you don't get it, Radio France, Radio Japan you don't get it, only the BBC station there's a kind of affinity between those waves and that particular wavelength on the radio a particular station on the radio in the same way the being's karma the kind of becoming that he's created that disposes the being towards birth under particular circumstances in a particular physical body in a particular environment I think uh, we could call these uh, Dhamma while what we find individually would be the karma The frequency would be karma, the energy would be dhamma, the frequency, the change, the frequency. Okay, then, okay, the Buddha saw living beings driven by this clinging into new forms of existence, new becomings, taking birth growing old and dying. Then he asked, why do beings cling to these five aggregates so tenaciously? And the reason he discovered is because they have tanha or craving. Craving and clinging are somewhat similar, but we can say that the tanha, the craving, is the early form of desire, the initial arising of desire whereas upadana is desire once it's found an object and it's holding on to that object upadana is almost literally holding so like the craving is when I see the cup of water and I'm thirsty and I want to drink then I have the craving then I reach out my hand then when I grasp the cup and hold on to it, that's upadana. Excuse me? Yeah, we could say holding, holding is almost identical, it's identical with clinging, both upadana. But this is clinging, it's... Well, actually they're both metaphorical. <laughs> But maybe holding makes it clearer, somewhat clearer. The difference, you would say, craving is like reaching out for the enjoyment. Clinging is holding on to it, grasping it. Uh, but there is also a psychological difficult uh, difference that everything from from not knowingness to craving happens, but you have no chance. But between craving and Upadana, there is the chance to say no. From Avidya to Tanna, yeah. it works in one yeah. shot. Yeah. But here, between yeah. Tanna and Upadana, yeah. is a possibility. Yeah. But this is getting ahead of ourselves now. <laughs> <laughs> We're still in the causal sequence, forward sequence rather than the reverse sequence. 
Okay. So craving, the Buddha analyzed into three types of craving. The more, the most obvious, the one which you could say plays the most basic role in our everyday life, in our ordinary mental activity, is kama tanha. That's the craving for sensual pleasures, craving for enjoyment of forms, craving for enjoyment of sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and mental objects. But then, underlying, and even deeper than sensual craving, is another type of craving, which is called, the Buddha called, bhava-tanha. This is craving for being, craving for existence. This you can might even call the lust for life, the desire to go on existing, to go on experiencing, to go on enjoying. Kamatana is the craving for particular enjoyable objects. Bhavatana is that basic, more basic craving to go on experiencing more and more in order the craving to go on becoming more and more to be this, to be that to enjoy this, to experience that and even those who don't hold to a belief in rebirth or any kind of future existence even animals, insects, still have bhava-tanha. It's that fundamental craving for existence. If you see an animal threatened with death, it becomes overcome with fear, it breathes and twists and turns this way and that. It agonizes when it is being afflicted with death. That's all the manifestation of this bhava-tanha. And in the case of human beings, and maybe the devas, bhava-tanha spills over into theories and beliefs, in theories and beliefs positing an eternal afterlife, some kind of eternity in a world beyond. So we have views and dogmas and beliefs of an eternal afterlife in a heaven, generally in a heaven of some kind, or in some kind of spiritual domain, sometimes said to be indescribable and inconceivable. But what underlies all of these beliefs and views is the notion that I will go on existing in some way. No, I wouldn't say it's equal. Well, actually, there is a kind of mutual reinforcement. Bhavatana, I would say, is deeper than Kamatana, since the urge to go on existing is more deep, is deeper, more fundamental than the urge to enjoy. But I would say that it's Kamatana 
desire for enjoyment, for sensual pleasure, which also feeds and supports bhavatana, because one then comes or fashions the idea of an eternal afterlife in which one will be able to enjoy indestructible sense pleasures. This is, for example, in the Islamic and Christian idea of heaven, that it's an eternity in which one is always enjoying wonderful, beautiful sense objects. Of course, the Buddhists also have the idea of heaven as a realm where one enjoys wonderful sense objects, but the Buddha teaches even these heavens are (coughs) impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise, (laughs) and it's not the final goal. Okay, I said that there's three types of tanha. First, sensual craving. Second, craving for existence, for becoming. And the third is forgotten. What is it? Okay, the third is... <laughs> okay, the third is Vibhavatana. This is a rather strange one. It's actually a very profound insight on the part of the Buddha to even recognize the existence of such a type of craving. Vibhavatana. Sometimes it's translated the craving for non-existence and what it means is the craving to end existence, to end one's own being. But it's always on the supposition that one is some kind of lasting self, that one has some kind of true self or true personality which will be annihilated and destroyed. Some people explain it as the craving which leads people to commit suicide, and even I've explained it that way in the past, but I don't think that is actually... There is more connection to this karma. I think so too, The Vipapatana seems to be like a philosophical type of craving, which is held by certain thinkers, philosophers, who there were schools of thought like this in the time of the Buddha, who had some aversion towards existence, like it. Maybe an aversion against media, against, against knowledge, against knowing. I don't know. Uh, there is a, a kind of attachment to ignorance. Very strong. Right, let me, well, I'll just explain it now the way I understand it first. Okay, the Buddha says that there are some, says some ascetics and Brahmins who are attached to existence, who cling to existence. These are the ones who fall into bhava-tanha, craving for existence. And they formulate bhava-ditti, the view of eternal existence, eternalist views. But then the Buddha says, that's the great majority, but there is a small number of ascetics and brahmins who are disgusted with existence who have an aversion towards existence and they desire the annihilation, the destruction 
the extermination of a truly existing living being. They think I am a self, a truly existing person of some type, but then they formulate the view, I will be annihilated, I will be at death, I will be annihilated, I will be destroyed, and will not exist anymore after death. So, that craving, that craving for annihilation, for non-existence, that gives rise to this philosophical view of that all beings will be annihilated and destroyed at death. Yeah. The desire for extinction, sense of nibbana. I wouldn't say that, that that is the same as the vibhava ditti. And the Buddha doesn't use the word vibhava tanha. The Buddha doesn't use vibhava in relation to nibbana. He calls nibbana bhava nirodha, which means the cessation of existence, the cessation of becoming. But the, the term vibhava suggests the kind of violent, almost a, like a forceful, cutting off and destruction of something that truly exists, some kind of truly existing self. But not only destruction, it can also lead to one of the most (laughs) modern forms of uh, looking almost spiritual, what you have as the last opinion in the Brahma Jala Sutta, which is also based upon uh, Viva, on nihilistic views. Dhammadita Vinayana In the view that like sensual enjoyment here and now Yes, that is here and now, that is very modern now because mm-hmm. today I think there is a shift in the proportion We yeah. have more people with materialistic that is really so, yeah. base of thinking than of idealistic base of yeah. thinking That is definitely has changed it Really, that is so because who believes in a soul in the West, so, um, they have another problem, a personality problem, not that of the soul. They have that, that person, material. Yeah, but interestingly, I haven't found in the text the Vibhavatana, Vibhava Ditti connected with, sensu- with the with sensualist. It's usually connected with a kind of you know, philosophers who have this aversion towards yes, existence. But uh, strangely yeah. it is found as maybe the most bearable of the materialistic views, yeah. which, especially for young people, is very attractive. Have a good day, it doesn't matter. You know? yeah. Yeah. So that, uh, after me, the deluge, that, yeah. that is the, the, the output of such a kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Okay, so, now, by tracing this chain of conditions back to tanha, to craving, in a sense, the Buddha has really completed the full understanding, or virtually completed the full understanding of what keeps the cycle of existence turning. And to complete it, sort of fully and literally, according to like a philosophical understanding, you would only have to ask, like, what causes craving, what conditions craving, and not look at the traditional formula, but just go according to the sense, the actual sense, 
And what would that, I don't want you to answer, what would the one condition for craving be? Not looking at the formula. What would be the underlying root condition for craving? Exactly. Ignorance, Abhijja. So, we don't really need the rest of the formula. <laughs> Not that I'm trying to. <laughs> Maybe you'll think, ah, now he's distorting and misrepresenting the Buddha. But actually there are texts which can show that you can just start with, from, go from ignorance to craving, and then complete dependent origination. The reason why beings crave, why people have craving, is because they don't understand things as they really are. Not understanding things as they really are, that is ignorance. Okay, so if we want to take a shortcut, then we can just explain in that way, beginning with ignorance, then going directly from ignorance to craving. But now the Buddha sort of expanded this process, or expanded this succession of links, by showing a different way of understanding the same sequence of events. We can take, okay, take craving as a point of departure and asking what, when people crave, what is sort of sustaining this craving? What is it that, um, that they are seeking to obtain when they pursue the objects of craving? What they're seeking to obtain, basically, is pleasure, pleasant feeling. And so we say the direct condition for craving is pleasant feeling. But people don't experience always pleasant feelings. They also experience other types of feelings, which also, in their own way, condition craving. Very often people experience painful feelings. Then when they have undergo a painful feeling, then they have a craving for relief from pain, for escape from pain. So in this way, painful feeling conditions craving. And also there is a kind of subtle feeling, neither pleasant nor painful. It's a kind of dull, neutral feeling. And when that feeling is experienced, people fall into a kind of dull complacency, thinking just like everything is all right, no need to sort of seek any kind of deliverance, but they just think, even though we're not blissed out, but it's just like sort of sitting back and nodding in front of the television set of drowsing, sometimes one opens the eyes, watches the program a little, shuts the eyes, drowses off, and you think, you know, the dog is sleeping on the floor, the kids are playing in the backyard, and everything is all right. But there's underlying the kind of dull indifference, there's also a deep underlying craving and clinging clinging to this false sense of security. So that neutral feeling is also a condition for craving. 
And so in this way one has the three types of feeling, conditioning, craving. Okay, so now the Buddha, <coughs> once he had located feeling as the kind of fuel that keeps the fire of craving burning. We say craving is like a fire and the fuel which is constantly being fed into it to keep it burning is feeling. Pleasant feeling triggering off a gratification of craving. Painful feeling triggering off the craving for relief, for escape. And this neutral, indifferent feeling triggering off that kind of comfortable, complacent attachment to the way things are. Then he asked, what is the condition for feeling? Why does feeling arise? And he answered, or he found out that feeling arises because we make contact. There's a contact of the sense faculties, the six sense bases, the six internal sense bases, or rather I say a contact of the mind with the six sense objects. The mind is making contact with the six types of sense objects. It makes contact with form, sound, smell, taste, touches, and mental, mental objects. And when there is such contact, then there arises one or another of these three types of feelings. Okay, why do we make contact? Why is the mind able to make contact with the six sense objects? because there are these six sense bases. These are like the doors or channels which open up and the mind goes out and makes contact. Through the eye, the mind goes out and makes contact with forms. Through the ear, the mind makes contact with sounds and so on. Within itself, the mind just turning back on itself then it makes contact with ideas and mental objects. stop now and then if there are any questions on anything that have been covered um, in the class today but not going to the parts of the formula that we'll deal with next time then please please ask maybe you should repeat again these 12 ayatana in the sense that this universe can we call it a universe? yeah, yeah? This universe is 12 fold universe 
by what is that twelvefold universe driven? And then we see it is practically driven by two ideas. I like, I don't like. Yeah. Huh? And then we see that on one side there is an enormous attachment to the motor, motor apparatus, i.e. and all sorts of. And there is an enormous craving for the objects. Yeah. And in between is the is the the tragedy of choice, which is also Chaitana, and uh, when we are taking these twelve ayatana, it is easier to enter these other things which I think is harder to do. When we have a, a structure of this, that is it, how it works, mm. that is how it comes. Also, I find it here ignorance, craving, then old age and death. But for practical reasons, I would say ignorance, feeling, craving. Yeah. Because otherwise there is no effect if we cannot, no feeling, no problem. No? Mm. So we see ignorance, feeling, craving is a condition for no. problem, no. dukkha. And I think this is very important and because we have something in our pocket to look at us, some problem is arising and we know, ah, no. that is caused by avidya, vedana, tamma. Yeah, yeah. No, that's by, by what? Avidya, vedana, tamma. Yeah, yeah. yeah. These three, yeah. we like to put uh, the muti, uh, the, the pot on yeah. three stones, you yeah. can't have even two stones yeah. or four stones. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that's a, a good point because it's we go on experiencing the feelings, whether there's ignorance or wisdom. But when there's ignorance, avijja, then the feeling, the true nature of the feeling, gets sort of covered up or disguised by our delusion. Then we become attached to the pleasant feeling, uh, disturbed, upset by the painful feeling and then we settle just into this dull equanimity or dull indifference towards the neutral feeling. If there isn't the ignorance but knowledge, one still experiences pleasant, painful, neutral feeling, but one understands the feeling. And so then the craving doesn't have a chance to arise. I think then there is full understanding that the feeling are here for the purpose to feel. And uh, the emotional problem story will not follow. It will be just pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant, neither unpleasant. Is it important for ignorance? Maybe let's put that off till next time. It's a good question, but I don't want to jump the gun too quickly. <laughs> okay, any questions on... <coughs> Okay, then we'll stop for now.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.